This is They Create Worlds, episode 180, Space Invaders, part two. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create Worlds. I'm Jeffrey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. We return once again to talk to you about Space Invaders in this epic part two sequel. That's right. But we left Space Invaders with this sadness. No one wanted to buy it. No one liked it. So obviously it failed and brought down the entire video game industries together. It was so epic and sad that why are we even talking about it today? That's right. Distributors were like, this is way too hard. This is ridiculous. You walk into a gun corner, a coffee shop, wherever you're playing these games in Japan. You see a video game machine. You have your very valuable shiny 100 yen piece. And you know that when you put that 100 yen piece into the coin slot, you are going to get 60 to 90 seconds of gameplay, which is a fair and equitable exchange. Now you're telling these people... They put in their 100 yen piece, and all of these invaders come and write for them. If they don't know what's going on, they might get blasted in 5 seconds? 10 seconds? 100 yen for 10 seconds? Jeffrey, this is an outrage. This will not do. Well, I certainly feel angry. Exactly. It's a ripoff. It's a ripoff. Okay, maybe if you come back to the machine and put a few more 100 yen pieces in, you may figure out how it works and play longer. But who's going to want to do that? Kid comes in, loses his 100 yen in five seconds. He's like, this is a jip, and he's going to go over and play this fantastic Taito Blue Shark machine, where all he has to do is point his little spear gun at all the little fishies. The fishies aren't going to chew his arm off just because he dared to shoot them. He can shoot a few things, rack up some points, and 60 to 90 seconds later, he can see how well he did. So, no. We will take Blue Shark, thank you. We will not take this invaders from space thing that you're trying to peddle on us. That was kind of the feeling. I mean, we have to remember the Japanese coin-op industry does not go back as far as the American industry. Or rather, while it goes back a decent ways, there was this little thing called World War II that created a definitive break within the Japanese industry. So while most of the people involved in the industry didn't go quite as far back to the Depression as in the United States, you still have guys that were getting involved in this industry in the 50s and the 60s. You have a culture that is very tradition-minded anyway. So there was already an expectation of what a coin-operated game was, and the distributors tended to be older, the distributors and the operators. And really, I've been saying distributors, but it's really more operators than distributors, because as we have to recall, there was actually, while there were one or two distributors in Japan, like ESCO Trading, that middle strata largely didn't exist. But the operators, they were a little older, a little set in their ways, and it looked stressful, it looked hard. It looked unpredictable, and it looked like something that was not going to give a good return on investment to their patrons. So nobody was particularly interested in it at first. They did get a few units out there, as we briefly touched upon at the end of last episode. Nishikato himself, I mean, he's not on the sales side, but based on his own understanding, what people told him in the company, etc., etc., 
a good number of those orders were probably just orders that they were able to finagle out of respect for Taito, you know, a long-standing operator in order to maintain a good relationship and also, you know, to allow Taito to save some face, which is a, a big part of Eastern culture, is going to take maybe a unit or two as a favor to the company even if they don't fully believe in it. But that's the kind of orders they were getting. They weren't getting many exciting orders. They were getting some, we'll do you this solid, but come back with something uh, a little different next time, okay? They only sold about 500 units, probably, in the first month or so. The players, however, were very different creatures than the operators. We talked about this last time, and we talked about this in our Japanese Game Center episode, but there had been a surge around video games in Japan in 1977, around the game Breakout and people cloning Breakout. There had been a real push at that time of video games moving out of just gun corners and and bowling alleys and places like that and into coffee houses, tea houses, snack bars, the kind of places where older high school students or college students might be hanging out. There was something of a youth movement in Japanese video game demographics at this time, so to speak, youth in this case being high school, college, though younger as well. This is a group that was looking for something exciting, that was looking for something different. It wasn't like these staid conservative operators. And so when they saw this game, they were just blown away because as we talked about last time from a gameplay perspective, this was like nothing ever seen before in an arcade. It combined some elements of some other things. You'd had games like Computer Space, Tank, Jet Fighter, where you would duel one other player or hardware-controlled opponent. Computer Space, it's technically two, but it's essentially a one-on-one kind of fight. So you'd had a little bit of we're flying around shooting at each other kind of thing before, competition a little bit. You'd had a little bit of this game may end prematurely with something like Breakout, where you had to keep the ball on the paddle, and if you miss the paddle too many times, your game was over. You'd even had a little bit of a taste of the high score in a game like Seawolf, where, like I said, last time the emphasis wasn't on competition between people, it was more on competing with yourself because the score could be reset at any time by the player. So these individual elements had been out there one way or another. But this is the first time that they all came together at once. You're taking on a whole horde of targets that you have to shoot. These targets are shooting back at you. To quote Ralph Wiggum, I'm in danger. You have this opportunity for competition through the high score, which is always displayed at the top of the cabinet. There's no initials, no tables yet. That would come a little later. But the high score on the cabinet is always displayed at the top of the machine. It's not resettable by the player. So you've always got this kind of goal, this thing you can try to beat. And of course, it also had a two-player mode. There was also, even if you weren't trying to beat the high score on the machine, there was also the opportunity for solid competition between you and a friend, because you'd alternate and your scores would display on the screen as well. There'd been nothing that had brought all of these elements together before. Of course, as we know, I mean, this is practically the entire paradigm A few years later, it goes from high score chasing to clearing levels with friends. But for the most part, this is the entire paradigm of what arcade video games are going to be like all the way up until the early 90s when the competitive fighting game boom kind of changes the vibe again. Certainly, it's the way that gameplay would be defined throughout what would very quickly become known as the golden age. Clearing the screen, avoiding damage, getting extra lives, continuing on, getting the high score, being the best. 
it's brand new and it's thrilling because for the not quite the first time, but mostly the first time, people are getting this real adrenaline rush out of playing a video game. And that's and that's kind of funny to think of because, you know, as someone who grew up in the 80s, it's like, well, isn't that always what action video games have been about? I mean, there are other types of games. There's strategy games and whatnot where it's not about the pure adrenaline rush. But haven't action games always been about adrenaline rush? No. Or rather, kind of the staid way that early games were, limited by their technology, meant that the amount of adrenaline rush you could get out of it was relatively small. This is pulse-pounding action backed by this great soundtrack, simple but effective at ratcheting up tension. Do you have concrete goals against other players, not just your friends, but also complete strangers that may go to the same gun corner or coffee house that you do? As a result, even though the operators were initially reluctant to take this game, the public in Japan took to it instantly. It was an overnight sensation. Probably just as well that it took a second for uh, the game to become popular, though, that operators didn't order it in large numbers right away, because it turned out there was actually a pretty important bug in the game upon release, which is just kind of an interesting thing to point out as a little trivia thing. They started getting reports that every so often, not regularly, but every so often, when somebody put in their 100 yen coin, they would not receive a credit. It would just eat their money. It took Nishikado a long time to track this down because it was a very rare thing. It's not like it was happening every other insert coin, you know. It was pretty rare. And it turned out, you know, they had this fun little attract mode, which I'm sure most people have seen, though. If not, we can always put it in the show notes. And I'm sure it's already in the show notes from last time, just from Let's Play videos. But, you know, they do this fun thing where the invaders come up and start messing around with the letters on the screen and all of this kind of thing. Turned out that at the point that the invader was interacting with the C of insert coin on this fun little attract mode animation, at that point, something about the code was conflicting and it would prevent a credit from registering in that exact moment. They got that corrected, and thankfully, there were only about 500 to 1,000 machines on the market at the time that they discovered that because this was right before it blew up big. If it had hit really big right away, that could have been a real, real, real problem, but they kind of dodged a bullet there because they were able to fix it before it was too widespread. The first sign that Nishikado got, I mean, again, we haven't talked to anyone in sales, but the first sign that Nishikado, as the creator of the game, got that the game was starting to get very popular, it's the same old time-honored story, and for all we know, it's apocryphal in this case as well, but it's the same story that's been told about Pong and many other games is they got reports about a machine that was no longer working. And when they went to investigate, not Nishikado personally, but whoever it was that went to investigate, they discovered that the machine was full. There was just no more room for coins, and that's why the machine had stopped working. Whether that individual story is apocryphal or not, it is a documented fact that very soon after that, they had to modify the Space Invaders machines they were shipping out to have a larger coin box. That was the first sign they knew that something was taking off, because it's like, okay, people are putting money in these machines. People are putting so much money in these machines that we need to expand the coin capacity of the game. Previewed in June, as we talked about last episode, came out in July. By August, the game is getting buzz. We're getting these reports of players playing it a lot. Coin boxes are filling up at prodigious rates. People are clearly getting excited about it. There's starting to be a sense that maybe there is something here after all. By September, 
Taito is so inundated with orders that they halt production on every other game in their repertoire because they need to put their full factory production towards Space Invaders. In October 1978, all of this is 1978, they take out an ad in Game Machine, which is the main coin-op trade magazine, kind of like the replay or the play meter of Japan. They take out an ad in Game Machine offering a personal and heartfelt apology that they are unable to fulfill all of their orders in a timely manner. They've shifted their entire factory capacity to nothing but Space Invaders, and Taito's been around a while. It's not like they're a small bootstrap operation. They have some factory capacity. And in October, they're apologizing because they cannot meet demand. Now, how many units are they actually putting out every, let's say, month? That I don't know. I don't have monthly figures. But based on the overall figures, it had to be in five digits, I think, by the time it really ramped up. Maybe not by October, but it had to be in the tens of thousands a month based on the final sales figures, which we'll get to in a bit. That's a lot of units. Yeah, well, you know, and the reason for this is it caught on so much, you know, everyone wanted them. So it came out in a cocktail table format, the famous tabletop format that had become popular during Breakout, and it came out in Upright. The tabletop version was something like 460,000 yen to purchase. The machines were so popular, they were taking in twenty to 30,000 yen per day. You could pay off a Space Invaders cabinet in well under a month. Then everything was pure profit after that. That's why operators were clamoring for it. That's why people wanted five machines, 10 machines, 15 machines. There were coffee houses that were replacing every single one of their tables with TT cabinets. There were other types of establishments that were converting themselves over into arcades, you know, small shops and whatnot. Pachinko, which had traditionally been the champion of coin-operated, I'll say amusements, though it's kind of more gray market gambling with Pachinko. It's not pure amusement. Pachinko was the undisputed king of coin machines, and the industry suffered over the course of 78 and 79 massive double-digit declines in popularity. Declined like in one year by 24% because of Space Invaders, and so some pachinko parlors converted from pachinko parlors to housing invader machines. The thing is, this was a boom that was primarily driven only by Space Invaders and derivatives of Space Invaders. Similar to the Pong boom, which didn't herald a larger uh, video game industry, coin-operated video game industry in the United States in 73, this wasn't like lifting all video games in Japan. This was invader machines only, so that many of these places that were converting to small game centers, the standard name for that, a name that persisted long after the boom even ended, was Invader House. Not Game Center, not Arcade, not Funland, Sportland, Playland, whatever. Invader House. Because you weren't going there to play coin-operated amusements. You weren't going there to play coin-operated video games. You were going there to play Space Invaders. Now, this degree of popularity, this was, as I recall, very unique to Japan, mostly because of the high-density area, how they were able to just throw it everywhere. Even though Space Invaders was very popular in the West and the United States, 
it wasn't this degree of fervor. We don't have things in the United States of invader houses. We don't have things in Europe of Alienville or whatever. <laughs> Except in Hawaii, which is interesting because, of course, Hawaii has a large Japanese population. So they actually had invader houses in Hawaii. But I'm just putting that out there as a fun trivia fact. I mean, you're absolutely right. We will get to the impact in the United States and Europe later in the episode. The impact in both places is huge, as we will see. Very huge. In the context of the coin-operated industries in existence at the time in both of those territories, it is an outsized, unbelievably bonkers hit. But yes, it is not the same degree. The U.S. had Pac-Man fever, right? Mm -hmm. What's happening with space invaders in Japan is very similar to what happened with Pac-Man in the United States a couple of years later, more so than Space Invaders. The song Pac-Man Fever became a top 10 hit. In Japan with Space Invaders, there was a novelty group called Funny Stuff that did a disco song called Disco Space Invaders. The impact was very outsized on music as well. I mean, the, the Disco Space Invaders thing, it was just a little novelty thing, just like Pac-Man Fever. But it was the first game that had really compelling sound in all the video games. I mean, there were coin-operated games before that had sound effects, obviously, and there were coin-operated video games even that had little bits of music. You know, we talked about this last time. It didn't have the continuous score. In previous games, there would be little ditties between rounds or that kind of thing. This was the first really compelling sound treatment in a video game, and the impact on electronic music was incredibly outsized. Yellow Magic Orchestra, YMO, a very, very influential electronic music group in Japan, hugely influential. They were partially inspired in their direction by Space Invaders. They were sampling the sound effects from Space Invaders in some of their early music. Even in the United States, we're not getting to the, in the United States generally yet, but even in the United States, the group The Pretenders, very important early 1980s rock band, they did a song where they sampled Space Invaders and was based on Space Invaders. Like, it captured the imagination of different areas of culture because it was so unique and interesting. It captured the music industry because of its unique use of electronics. The Space Invaders alien, the main crab-like alien, became not only just a mascot for Taito, but it became kind of the first video game mascot in Japan. You know, in the United States, again, we associate this with Pac-Man, and Pac-Man appeared on all sorts of merchandise. The merchandising aspect of Space Invaders wasn't big in the West, but in Japan, you were seeing the invader on t-shirts and pencils and potato chips and all of these products. There was a real cultural sweep across visual arts, across music, and just across games that was absolutely humongous in Japan, and Taito could not keep up with demand. This was a problem for a lot of reasons. The main reason it was a problem is because there was, at this time, no copyright recognition for video games. Because under existing copyright laws, which were never designed to handle this, you couldn't copyright something like gameplay because gameplay wasn't fixed. How the game played out had a lot to do with the player, and so because it wasn't fixed in a medium, the images on the screen, the gameplay, was not copyrightable. You could maybe copyright the code, but the problem is the code is not understandable by humans. You know, it's, it's machine language. It's not telling a story. <laughs> it's meant for a computer to read and, and understand. 
it wasn't so clear that you could actually copyright the underlying code either under existing copyright laws, which had been last updated in earlier times when, you know, they had to take into account television and film, but there was nothing about interactive games. There was no copyright protection. There was no great movement in any legislatures in the Japanese diet or in in legislatures in other parts of the world to update copyright laws to accommodate this. So the only way to kind of get copyright protection would be to get a court to agree that the existing copyright laws also covered video games. And in Japan, the courts move very slowly. I mean, the courts move very slowly everywhere, but they move very slowly in Japan. If you were to file a court case in Japan trying to get a ruling on an extension of copyright law, essentially creating new precedent, you could be looking at a decade of litigation before a decision is reached. It just moves that slowly sometimes. Of course, immediately, just as as happened with Breakout, when Namco could not keep up with demand, immediately there was a flood of cloned games on the market because everybody wanted them and they could not get them. It was practically money in the bank. You know, we talked about blue sky operators in our cocktail episode just recently, and we talked about how these newspaper ads that they were putting in the newspaper, they were promising these huge profits, like incredibly exciting new video game field. Come make lots of money. Game pays for itself immediately. And of course, in the context of the cocktail market, that was a scam at that time. If those same ads had been run in Japan in October 1978, they would have been completely true. It was sky high. Everybody was making money. There seemed to be no limit to how many of these machines the market could absorb. Since you were making 20000 30000 I think a day. I could be a week, I'm not sure, based on my sources, but it was definitely not a month. I mean, you were paying off these machines instantaneously. Then you were just making money, period. So, of course, there was cloning, of course, there was copying, and of course, there were companies that were making just slight variants. And of course, these companies had a market because Taito couldn't keep up with demand, and there wasn't much Taito could do. I mean, they tried a couple of times against some smaller companies to bring some court cases, but their hands were really tied just because of the legal situation. So what they did is something that was unprecedented at the time, but would become a standard staple of how the Japanese industry operated all throughout the rest of the Golden Age, and that's they targeted some more reputable companies in the coin-op business, or in some cases even in just the electronics business. They sub-licensed them and allowed them to officially make their own versions of the game. Some of them just took the Taito boards and made it exactly as it was. Some of them made slight variations, but they brought in other companies. And this was a major jumpstart for several important companies in the industry. I mean, a couple of the companies are ones that nobody really knows about today that are smaller. One of those is a company called Logitech. And no, it is not that Logitech. Logitech, without an H on the end, is a brand name of a Japanese CRT manufacturer named Kanto Electronics. Logitech, with an H on the end, is a Swiss company that may have made a mouse you owned at some point in your life. So no, it's not that Logitech, but it is a Logitech. You know, they were a company that was already in electronics manufacturing. They had a lot of experience with television, CRTs, electronics. So they were brought in to be a manufacturer of these games. Another company, Jatra, J-A-T-R-E, they were an import-export company that had made a lot of money in the metal game business, which we've talked about before, the metal games that had been such a boom in the mid-1970s in Japan. 
they were brought in as well, and they created a version called Spectre, but it was licensed. It's essentially Space Invaders, but it played a little faster. They were also very big, I think, because of their experiences in other areas. They did a lot of tournaments. There were national tournaments going on in Japan as well, you know, early, in a way, esports competitions. I mean, it's it's different because it's coin-op tournaments, but early video game competition in Jatra was one of the big companies involved in getting that started. The other companies that they brought in, though, ended up becoming huge names in the business. One of those was uh, Shin Nihon Kikaku, SNK, as they later shortened their name to. S&K got involved in the breakout boom. They were one of the companies that entered in at that time, and they had put out some games. They were early on microprocessors. They actually put out a breakout clone called Micon Block in April 1978 that had a microprocessor at a time when this was still incredibly rare in Japan. I'm sure that's part of what attracted Taito to S&K. They had experience with microprocessor-based games, so S&K was brought on board. IPM was another company that was brought on board that you would better know today by its changed name of IRAM. IPM at this time was one of the largest operators in Japan. After the big three, because we have to remember, as we've talked about in the past, in Japan the manufacturers were also operators of arcades. After the big three of Namco, Taito, and Sega, IRAM was the fourth largest operator in Japan, but they didn't make their own games really. Like everyone else, they got in on breakouts. They did make a breakout game, but that was the first time they'd been in actually making games. They had been in the business of operating games long before that. They were brought in, I think, because they had such a huge reach. And by bringing in, this is speculation, but it only makes sense, by bringing in IPM, which was operating in a lot of independent outlets, it was another way of forestalling the clones because IPM could get this game out to its regular customers. And so they did a version called IPM Invader that was actually in color. The Taito version, of course, had colored cellophane strips to give the illusion of color. IRAM, IPM at the time, actually used a real color hardware system for IPM Invader. Then the other company they brought in was a company that had not at all been in video games, and that was Sammy, which, of course, is the company that went on to purchase Sega, you know, which is now Sega Sammy. They were bigger in Pachinko and had not done video games at all at this point. But again, they were such a big established company that it made sense to bring them in, and so they also released their own licensed version of Space Invaders. So you had this ecosystem in place where Taito was sub-licensing a lot of companies, and some of them were just putting out Space Invaders. Some of them, like Jata Respector and IPM with IPM Invader, were putting out their own slight twists on it, but it was all part of this ecosystem, and this became a standard process. A lot of the hit games that came out afterwards, like Head-On and Galaxian and Donkey Kong and Zaxxon and all of these games, Frogger were all done in the same way, where the manufacturer would sublicense. They did two things. They sublicensed this set of companies to put out the game all on their own, but they also made deals with the other big companies in Japan. Even with all of these companies making machines, and them putting almost their entire factory output towards making machines, they still could not keep up with demand. So they had licensed the machine to Midway for release in the United States. We'll talk about the American experience in a second, but they actually asked Midway if Midway would ship some of their production back to Japan to further flood the market in Japan. 
because the game was taking off in the U.S., Midway couldn't really do very much. They didn't send very many. So at that point, according to Gene Lipkin, who was president of the coin-op division at Atari, Taito actually went to Atari and asked if Atari would manufacture Space Invaders cabinets in the United States for them to then send back to Japan. According to Gene Lipkin, they did. They kind of kept it secret. It's not something that was announced in the trades at the time. They didn't want it getting out. But according to Gene Lipkin, they were secretly manufacturing Space Invaders at Atari in the United States to ship back to Japan just because they were trying to meet this insatiable demand for the game. It's interesting because we've talked about other booms and we've talked about how hard it was to keep up with demand like Atari with Pong and whatnot. In most of those cases, it ends up being a long ramp up, like company has game that is unexpectedly hit, company starts manufacturing as many as they can but can't meet demand, other companies slowly start coming in with a cloned product, counterfeited product, or just a similar variant product, and start releasing their games as well, and maybe after a 12-month period has elapsed, you're starting to see a huge, huge uptick in the number of games. Well, in this case, it's happening almost instantaneously, like within months of the July release. Within half a year, the market has been flooded, absolutely flooded. Just to give you an idea, the Japanese National Police Agency would keep an eye on things that may need to be regulated. You know, they would keep track of how many of this were out there, how many of that, how many pachinko machines, you know, and so they were keeping track of video games as well. By the middle of 1979, roughly one year after Space Invaders was released. The last time they did a look in 1978, there were about 70,000 video games estimated to be on the Japanese market of all kinds. Every last video game in Japan. Estimates, but probably pretty good estimates. By the middle of 1979, when they did their next report, there were 280,000 video games in Japan. Within the course of about a year, 210,000 new video games were on the market in Japan. And of those 280,000 video games, 230,000 were estimated to be Invader games. If you do the math on that, I mean, there were only 70,000 games before. There are only 50,000 non-Invader games in Japan in 1979, which means that basically all of that new output of 210,000 machines were Invader games. And the output was even more than that because a lot of these old machines were dumped, were gotten rid of. Of those 70,000 that were in operation in 1978, a lot of those were probably no longer in operation in 1979. So the number of new games on the market is even greater than 210,000, if that makes sense. Yeah. You're looking at roughly 400% increase in the number of arcade cabinets out there, of video video games. Yeah, quadrupling. Quadrupling of arcade cabinets on location, and an even greater than quadrupling of production, because like I said, a lot of those games that were on the market before, those were all shuffled off and gotten rid of and replaced with Space Invaders games. So you're talking about more than quadrupling. 82% of that is Space Invader games. Exactly. That's insane. That is such a level of dominance. It's just like something that's almost untenable. It's sort of like how Atari was the thing in video games Mm -hmm. in the United States as far as home consoles go. It's almost like it's too big to fail. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. I mean, this is why they were called Invader Houses. Just to give an idea, again, because there were more statistics... Two-thirds of those Space Invader cabinets were the tabletop type, what we would call cocktail cabinets in the United States. 
because that's where these games were primarily going. They were going into the snack bars, the coffee shops, the lounges. They were going into these places where people socialize, or they were being put in these invader houses and just set up in rows and rows in these invader houses. It was mostly the sit-down cabinets that were the popular cabinets. It's building on Breakout, because Breakout started this. When Breakout was converted to tabletop by uh, Taito and others, you know, Namco released the original, but other companies were pioneering the tabletop aspect with their clones. That started opening up these places, and then Space Invaders just blew the door wide open. The reason they were able to build up so quickly, it's interesting, according to some Japanese trade publications at the time, the reason they were able to do this, like, usually when you have a popular product like this, your supply greatly lags your demand, because nobody was expecting something to become so big, and so there's shortages. This happened with Pong, this happened with the home Pong units. We've talked about that in 1966, how General Instrument couldn't meet demand for Pong on a chip. It happened when electronic handhelds got big in the U.S., you usually have a component shortage that short-circuits the growth of your market. Well, you see, Japan had just recently had a really bad recession related to the Arab oil embargo that had really affected Japan because, of course, they, were, they had to import everything. They were on an island, uh, on islands, rather, that you know, didn't have a lot of natural resources, didn't have oil. The oil shock in Japan after the uh, Arab oil embargo, the response to Western support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War, was particularly devastating in Japan and had caused a real grind into the halt of the economy, and it caused a real pulling back in the electronics industry. There had been a glut of electronics components because due to the oil shock, there had not been the electronics production that was expected, so there were just all of these parts sitting in warehouses. So this is one of the very few times in video game history, probably in all of electronics history, though I don't know enough about electronics history generally to say that with authority, but certainly the only time in video game history where a sudden influx of demand was actually perfectly complemented with an overproduction of supply. Everybody could get all the components they needed to manufacture these machines instead of having to wait because it took everyone by surprise and the electronics companies, the components makers, were not ready to absorb that demand. Even though there wasn't a shortage of electronic components, there was a different shortage. And this is a shortage that we need to now take some time to discuss because it's a shortage that is very misunderstood and it has at times even been very misunderstood on this very podcast. That is the shortage of 100 yen coins that resulted from the Space Invaders phenomenon. So which one is it? Is it that 100 yen coins were in abundance and there didn't have to be some sort of national edict of, hey, you need to make some more coins or else we're going to have to have issues? Or, hey, stop holding on to those coins, get them back to the mint. We need to run them through the washing machine so that we can hand them back out to people. Or is it just sort of like, yeah, this thing was really popular. People had coins, money, exchanged hands, everyone was happy. <laughs> La-di-da. Right. So the answer is probably a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. For those of you who don't know, this is the legend or myth or whatever Alex is going to correct us on, that 100 yen coins were used so prolifically in Japan that there was a shortage of it, and the mint either had to make a whole bunch more to make up the deficit, or the diet had to go to invader houses and say, 
we would like our coins back, please. Or that was just the sense people got. But in reality, there were plenty of coins out there because things just naturally cycled. Exactly. So a little bit of background on this, first of all, because I think it's interesting to go into the historiography of all of this. The first reports about a yin shortage in Japan in Western sources were coming roughly around 1980, 1979, 1980, when Space Invaders was becoming popular in the United States. The press started having fun running stories about how the game had been so popular in Japan, this game that's now sweeping the United States, was so popular in Japan that it caused a 100 yen coins shortage that resulted in the Japanese government having to triple production of coins. That's where the story begins in the West. From there, it was picked up by the various history books that came out. Most notably, of course, The Ultimate History of Video Games by Stephen Kent, which, despite its many, many errors, became kind of the gold standard in video game history books for a couple of decades, mostly because of its widespread general availability and reasonable cost. That became the story from the news reports to the early history books that there was a hundred yen coin shortage caused by space invaders that forced the Japanese government to triple production of the coin. That probably stems from an article in Nikkei Shinbun, one of the major economic financial newspapers in Japan, from May 13th, 1979, with the headline translated into English by John Harrison, who runs the site MD Shock, with the headline, The Bank of Japan's Plan to Counter the Loss of 30 Million 100 Yen Coins. From that article in a major Japanese newspaper, to articles in American newspapers discussing this new video game history craze, to early video game history books like Stephen King's Ultimate History of Video Games, to generally accumulated knowledge of the general public. Then as we get into kind of the 2010s, there starts to be more of a critical evaluation not amongst the general public, who are oblivious to all of this, but people like myself who have more of an interest in this history, there started in the 2010s to be more of a critical reevaluation of many of the blanket claims made in books like The Ultimate History of Video Games. A lot of stories that were deemed too good to be true for one reason or another started to be investigated more closely to see if those claims really held water when subjected to additional scrutiny. The 100 yen coin story was absolutely one of those claims that was being investigated because on its face, it sounds ridiculous. Yes, we know Space Invaders was popular. We didn't necessarily have all of these numbers that I have today. We didn't know that there were 280,000 machines or 230,000 were Space Invaders. Yes, it was very popular. Yes, it was taking over the country. But would it really cause such a shortage of coins that one game is responsible for a tripling of production by the Japanese Mint? It sounds a little bit ridiculous on its face. And of course, since the American newspapers, you know, their reporters don't necessarily have the greatest end into Japanese sources, just because it was reported in American newspapers at the time doesn't necessarily mean that it holds much water. There was more reevaluation of this in the early 2010s. An individual by the name of Charles Paradis, or Paradis, P-A-R-A-D-I-S, at the Currency Museum of the Bank of Canada, wrote an academic article, Insert Coin to Play, Space Invaders and the 100 Yen Myth, 
in which he set out to debunk the story. He actually contacted both the Bank of Japan and the Japanese Mint's PR office to see if he could find any evidence from them that this had been a thing that happened. Nobody could point him to anything that said that this had actually happened. He talked to Nishikado, and Nishikado said that it, you know, it's just something he heard, that it may be a rumor. So this started to create this idea that it may be a myth. And then there was another article, actually even before this one, in February 2012, in a periodical called World Coin News by a guy named Mark Fox called Space Invaders Targets Coins. He didn't have direct contacts like Paradis did at the bank. He wasn't the first person to do this, but he was one of the first ones to kind of publish it in a periodical. He went back through and looked at the figures for coins minted in Japan year by year, which is something he could find. And he saw that in 1978 and 1979, there were not an outlandish number of coins minted. It was pretty much in line. Like in 1977, 440 million coins were minted. In 1978, they only minted 292 million. In 1979, it rose to 382 million, but that was still less than 1977. And then in 1980, it rose to 588 million. There was a drop in the first year the game was on the market, and then the biggest rise came in 1980 when the boom was already over. It's also true that at the time, the government was changing over the makeup of their coins, the metals used in their coins, because the metals that they had been using were becoming too valuable and were worth more than the coins themselves, you know, that problem. Part of the reason that there was a rise in minting at this time was attributed to the fact that Japan was having to replace a lot of its 100 yen coinage as well. So based on these articles... In 2012 and 2013, there was a complete backlash to this idea that there was actually a 100 yen coin shortage. Somewhere in there, I interviewed the head of Taito America at the time, Ed Miller, who had also worked at Taito Japan before that, had a really close relationship with the Kogan family. So even though he was the American head, he knew a lot about what was going on in Japan. What he said is that there was a problem with coins vanishing into machines and that the Japanese diet was concerned and that there was a real movement to try to get the coins turned around faster, to get them out of machines and back in circulation faster. Then it became logical to think, okay, maybe what it was is not so much that there was a nationwide shortage, but that there was concern and there were efforts to get the coins in circulation faster. And maybe in certain areas, some banks ran out of coins occasionally because of this very localized shortages. That's probably the origin of this thing that we now all believe is a myth. Very neat and pat story. Now we have additional sources. We have the editor of Game Machine, Akagi. He wrote a book back in 2005 about the history of the Japanese video game industry with a huge focus on coin-op because he was the editor of Game Machine magazine. He had more detailed information and broke down figures of yen production by month instead of by year, which provided a more nuanced look at what might be going on. And then John Harrison, who I mentioned previously... He translated some material from Japanese, some interview material and some book material that further showed that something was probably up. Now we're back to, yes, this really was a thing, and it's probably been slightly blown out of proportion over time by people re-reporting it and the language barrier and everything, but that at its core, it's something that actually happened. So now that we've gone over the historiography of this whole thing, let's take a moment here and actually discuss what happened so far as we know it right now. 
with the understanding that two years from now, five years from now, two minutes from now, our understanding of the situation may change again. Near as we can tell, what happened is the game was very, very popular, as of course we've been spending this whole episode talking about. Popular game means coin box fills up. Coin box fills up means games stop working, as we just talked about. Also, as we talked about, and I found further figures so it was per day, most machines were starting to take in 200 coins per day by the time the machine was becoming very popular. 200 hundred yen coins, or 20,000 yen per day per machine. And of course, most establishments have 5, 6, 10, 12 machines. They have to get all of these coins cleared out of these machines because if they don't, machine stops working and they stop making money. They are not equipped to store hundreds and hundreds of coins securely on site. They needed to get these coins to the banks. According to Akagi, who wrote the history book but also lived through this because he was part of the industry as the editor of Game Machine magazine, a lot of these banks began to get fed up with the huge numbers of coins that were being brought in daily by a lot of these operators in the more congested part of the countries and major downtown areas. It was kind of starting to overwhelm their capacity as a local bank. At some point, a lot of banks started refusing to take all of these coins that were coming in. Because the banks weren't taking them, but people still needed to get more and more coins from the banks to put in these machines, this meant that there was an imbalance developing where all of the coins were out in the world someplace being stored wherever these companies were trying to store them because banks weren't taking them, but the banks needed more 100 yen coins to keep their operations going. So then, because they don't have coins coming back to them, they have to go to the Japanese central bank and say, we need you to release more coins to us, to our institution, so that we can keep supplying these coins to the people who need them. This, in turn, requires, since they're releasing more coins, it requires the mint to mint more coins. If you look at the yearly figures, this doesn't show up. In fact, as we said, there had been a sharp decrease in 1978, and then there was an increase of just under 100 million in 1979. But there was an even bigger increase in 1980, and since there was such a big drop in 1978, it doesn't look unusual, that increase, when you look at the yearly figure. It doesn't look weird. But something very different happens when you look at the monthly figures, which is what Akagi did. We discussed this in one of our corrections episodes, so some of this is repeat, but we just want to lay it all out again because we're doing a big giant Space Invaders episode and we want to get everything in. If you look at the monthly figures of coins issued, not necessarily coins minted throughout the year, but coins issued by the central bank through the year, the months with the biggest increases in the number of coins are usually July, August, November, and December, which are all focused around major seasonal holidays. People are spending more money in that time period, and so it makes sense. In other months, there is usually a decrease because then the supply and demand balances out. So after you have a big increase in December, you usually have a decrease in January because things are balancing out again. So in 1978, according to Akagi, 
In January, there was a decrease of 780 billion yen issued in January 1978, then a decrease of 790 billion yen in February, another decrease of 1 billion yen in March, and then an increase of 2.8 billion yen in April. Just the monthly issuing. Again, this isn't the minting of the coins, which are minted at a lower level. We're talking about the issuing. We're talking about circulation. That's a pretty logical step because November, December, you see big rises because people are doing all their Christmas stuff because Christmas is actually kind of a thing, even in Japan, for giving gifts. Then you see decreases through the first part of the year because people don't spend as much money in those first few months of the year. That's true most places. In 1979, the pattern started as usual. There was a decrease of 890 billion yen in January issued, a decrease of 790 billion yen in February issued. But then in March, which remember had a 1 billion yen decrease in 1978, there is a 2.1 billion yen increase in March and a 650 billion yen increase in April. Another month that had a huge decline the month before, from 2.8 billion yen decrease in 1978 April to 650 billion yen increase in 1979 April. That's a humongous swing. Akagi postulates, and it makes sense with some of this other information that we have, that the reason for that increase in issuing was because of space invaders. Because this isn't about minting, this is about the coins that have to be put into circulation. And it's clear from our other sources, it's clear from what Akagi says, it's clear from what Ed Miller said to me, it's clear from some of the Japanese sources that John Harrison translated, some interviews with arcade operators at the time, an interview with Kuzo Komai, who we've talked about before, the Nintendo employee who was in charge of Nintendo Leisure Systems, their arcade arm. All of these people said that the bank's the Diet, the Bank of Japan, everybody was very concerned about the circulation. You know, the Diet was coming in and investigating, and there were moves to try to get companies to turn around their coins faster, because, of course, the big companies, they would often have to send everything to a central clearinghouse, and then they'd send it out, so that's a delay. So there was definitely a shortage. It wasn't necessarily that they had to increase production of coins which I think is something that got lost in translation. It's that they had to increase the issuing of coins and they had to work really, really furiously to keep the coins in circulation. They had to get the banks to start taking them again after they had refused for a while. They had to get the big companies to clear their money faster, get it counted, get it sorted, get it deposited in banks faster. The Imperial Diet was going around making noise. The Bank of Japan was contacting companies like Nintendo. This is what Kumaya remembers were contacting coin-op companies like Nintendo, presumably like Taito as well, asking them how many coins they had and how they were storing them because they wanted to get them back out there. So yes, there was a shortage. The shortage is real. The shortage caused companies to have to take extraordinary steps, companies and banks, and the government to take extraordinary steps to keep 100 yen coins in circulation. Did they triple production of the coins? No. Did they greatly increase their issuing of coins to compensate? For a few months, yes, at the beginning of 1979, which was kind of the peak of the boom. So that's where we are now, from story to myth to not myth, with some subtle changes. And I think this understanding is probably going to hold up. I mean, I'm sure there's additional nuances to learn. There's always additional nuances to learn. But I think at this point, we can be very confident that there was a scarcity, that there was a national crisis around this, and that there really was a shortage of 100 yen coins caused entirely 
by the impact of space invaders. That's why you send a whole bunch of people with big suits going around to every single bank going, if you would like to continue to receive coins from the central bank, please accept coins from your patrons. <laughs> I suppose so. I don't know that such discussions happen, but it wouldn't surprise me. Definitely wouldn't surprise me. So we have nearing 300,000 units of space invaders running around here. We got all this crazy going on. People are loving this thing. We have to have America to make video games of space invaders to ship back to Japan. <laughs> yep. The sky's the limit. It would seem to be, and it was for a very long time, and still it was suddenly halted, not by oversaturation. Most of these booms end because of oversaturation of the marketplace. This time it wasn't oversaturation of the market that ended it. This time, the thing that ended it was regulation. At this time in Japan, most game centers, most invader houses, were open 24-7. Rooftop department store locations, they had to close at the end of the day, and in fact, they were starting to decrease in importance because they had to close at the end of the day. But the majority of the gun corners and game centers and invader houses and whatnot were operating 24-7. Space Invaders was attracting people from all walks of society. Everything from little kids to salarymen. Remember, there's a certain stigma to doing certain things like playing games when you're an adult in Japan. So to get salarymen playing a game that is purely just a game, not like Pachinko where there's a gambling element— that's huge. That just shows how ridiculously over-the-top this phenomenon was. The fact that there were little kids that were playing these games and that these centers were 24-7 without a lot of supervision led to one of those periodic moral panics that have been the bane of the coin-operated industry's existence for its entire history. Oh, people are skipping school to play games. Oh, people are spending their lunch money on games. Oh, bullies are beating up the other kids to take their lunch money to go spend them on games. Oh, these places are dark and barely supervised, so kids are hanging out in the back and smoking and doing all of these things they're not supposed to do. And they're open 24-7, an extra wrinkle for Japan, so kids are sneaking away and going off and playing all night when they shouldn't be and falling in with the bad crowd. You know, it's the usual moral panic that has always dogged coin-operated games, and particularly dogs coin-operated games when there's a massive outsized hit that the entire public is suddenly taking notice of. It looked like the diet, the imperial diet, the legislature of Japan, was perhaps going to act and regulate the industry, which could be a complete disaster. Because at the time, there was a strong belief that without this 24-7 operation, that a lot of this business wasn't viable. There was a big fear that the imperial diet could shut the game centers down, not like close them everywhere forever, but restrict their hours and all sorts of other things that could really dampen their popularity. At this period of time, that didn't happen. But the only reason it didn't happen is because the JAA, the Principal Trade Association, the All Japan Amusement Park Association, yes, amusement park, not too long after this, there would be a split and JAMA would be formed and there would be a split-off of the amusement park and coin-operated manufacturers' trade organizations, but at this time they were all under one umbrella organization, the JAA, decided to take self-regulatory steps to prevent the complete calamity that they saw coming. 
So on June 2nd, 1979, they released a directive called the Declaration of Invader Type Game Machine Operational Controlled Management. What this directive required was that Invader games only be installed at facilities where there is an attendant there actually watching what's going on. Because, you know, gangs and smoking and juvenile delinquency and all of this stuff going on in these unsupervised locations. Number two, children under 15 are not to be allowed in these game centers without parental accompaniment. Number three, in order to enter a game center after 11 p.m., period, you have to be 18 or older. These were not laws. These were guidelines. But Japan, it works a little bit differently than the United States. I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of how this stuff works. I'm not an expert on Japanese culture, but they partnered with the national police to compel enforcement. Even though these weren't strictly laws, these were rules that had to be followed. They weren't just more like guidelines. They were strictly enforced rules. While these new restrictions didn't completely overturn the traditional model, game centers are still allowed to be open 24-7, for instance, it did have just enough of a chilling effect on the public's playing of Space Invaders games that it brought the entire thing to a screeching halt. Sales of new machines just stopped. Everything dried up. There wasn't a crash of the entire industry. The industry continued on. But the craze was over. The sky was no longer the limit. Though, of course, by this time, things were really beginning to pick up in other parts of the world. Now it's time to turn our attention to the United States and a little bit to Europe. Now, in the United States, we have to set the scene a little bit again. Pong is released the very end of 1972, really gets into production in 1973, causes a huge boom. In some ways, similar to the invader boom in Japan, but not nearly so acute, because we have to remember, Japan is about the size of California when you put all of its land together. The United States is way bigger than Japan. So when Pong-type games sell around 70,000 units in 1973, that's spread out across the entire vast United States. Whereas in Japan, 230,000 Space Invaders-type games were put on location in the course of about a year in an area the size of California. It's orders of magnitude different, but from the perspective of the coin-op industry in the United States, that Pong boom was pretty huge. It was a similar kind of boom to what you saw with Space Invaders in Japan, but not nearly as crazy just because we're so much bigger in landmass and population. It's a big drop-off after that. We've talked about this in other episodes, which is setting the stage here. There's a big drop-off after that. There was a slow rebuild up to 1976, which was the new peak. Not quite as big as the initial Pong boom, but by 1976, video games were kind of on their way back. Then Solid State Pinball came along and basically took over the coin-op industry. Video games started declining again. Not as big a crash as there was after the collapse of the Pong boom, but fewer new games coming out, lower coin drop, newer games not attracting much attention. The popularity charts in 1978 still largely had games from 1976 on them. I mean, there were a couple of new games like Circus and Space Wars that had done well, but games from 1976 were still some of the chart topping games of 1978. There was a general malaise again. 
The other thing is, is you had a coin-op industry that was shifting in various ways in the United States. And so this video game penetration was an even more unequal than it sounds like with that. Throughout the 1970s, there had been a growth in actual arcade locations. We've talked before how the video game business, the coin-operated games business, was basically a bar and tavern business at the time Pong came out in 1972. Not that there weren't some boardwalk arcades or some remaining inner-city arcades. I mean, there were absolutely a few arcades here and there. But it was largely a bar and tavern business. Street locations. As the 70s progressed, you had the rise of the shopping mall arcade. And the rise of the shopping mall arcade also spurred some arcade activity in other areas outside of shopping malls, too. It's not like they were all in shopping malls. But you had this rise of the shopping mall arcade, the Aladdin's Castles and Time Zones and Red Barons of the world. These institutions were trying to be more family-friendly and were trying to appear harmless compared to past coin-operated game venues, and so video games were a big part of their strategy to feel like something new and family-friendly and kid-friendly and not the bad old reputation of pinball and pool and jukeboxes and these other traditional coin-operated things. A lot of the video games that were being sold in this time period, 75, 76, 77, 78, A lot of them were going into arcades more than they were going into street locations. Again, this is not absolute. That doesn't mean you couldn't find a video game in a bar or find a video game in a pool hall or a convenience store or that kind of thing. It did mean that in general, the video games were concentrated in a lot of these arcade locations and the street locations were really more other types of coin-operated games, and the street locations were still a very important part of the coin-operated industry at this time. So as Solid State Pinball came in, Solid State Pinball had a great run going into street locations. It really pushed into convenience stores and pizza parlors or ice cream shops or, you know, some of these areas because it was very popular. Video games were not really invading, (laughs) pun intended, a lot of these traditional locations in the same way. So video games were doing okay. Atari and Midway were having success with it. There were a small number of other companies that were involved, but they weren't doing super great. And especially after Solid State Pinball came along, it felt like the industry was beginning to contract. And and you did, in fact, see some of the smaller players in the industry start to leave, like Meadows Games, which we've talked about, like Ramtech in some of these companies that had been part of this American infrastructure, there wasn't really much Japanese product in the United States at this time. Midway had imported a few games. Atari had imported a non-video game from Namco. Namco had had a little success on its own with a game called Shoot Away. It was, again, a non-video game. There were still some novelty attractions. Even though video games was starting to kill off electromechanical driving games and shooting games, There was still a little bit of that business clinging on. There had been a couple of successful Japanese imports there, but other than Midway bringing in a couple of Taito games, there really wasn't a Japanese presence in the United States in any kind of meaningful way. So that's what the situation looked like in the United States when Taito turned its attention to bringing Space Invaders over to the country. Just about the only, them and Namco were really the only 
companies that had much contact with the U.S. And Sega, of course, is its own separate beast because Sega is technically an American company at this time, even though they're in Japan and it's complicated and we have whole episodes devoted to that. So we don't have time to go over that again here. Taito was absolutely going to bring the game over to the United States. And at first they were going to do it directly themselves through Taito America. You know, they'd had an American presence since 1973, facilitating importing and exporting of products, primarily coin-op, but not only coin-op. This game seemed like it was going to be, you know, an okay game, and so, you know, why license it? Let's figure out how to do this ourselves. And so Taito America tested it, put it out on test as you do, tested very well. Taito America was very excited that they were going to get the chance to do this. Then the craziness started in Japan, you know, the absolute unbelievable craziness. All the cloning and counterfeiting and copying started, and Taito was like, there's no way. There's no way if we try to handle this ourselves. You know, they don't have a factory in the U.S. yet. They open one after Space Invaders is a success, but they don't have a factory in the U.S. yet. Releasing it in the U.S. through Taito America means building them in Japan and shipping them over. There's no way they're going to be able to keep up with demand in the U.S. They can't even keep up with demand in Japan. So they're like, we have got to farm this out. Much to Taito America's chagrin, who would have liked to have taken the product to market, they did return to Midway, who, as we talked about last episode, had released several of Tomohiro Nishikado's games in order to bring Space Invaders. Once again, people didn't quite realize what was going on. Midway debuted it at the AMOA show in November of 1978. Unlike in Japan, it was well-received at the show, according to the reports that we have in the trade magazines. However, it was just another game like, oh, and the Space Invaders game looks kind of cool. It wasn't, this is revolutionary, this is amazing, everyone go get one now, this is the best game at the show. None of that. It was like, uh, you know, Space Invaders look kind of cool. Sure, whatever. You know, not bad reviews, but not best in show, most amazing thing to ever hit the coin-op industry kind of reviews. At first, it didn't do well. Just like in Japan, it didn't do that well through the end of the year. It wasn't Space Invaders' fault, but this was a time when the industry was in crisis, and operators were getting incredibly picky about the new games that they brought in, and they were focusing a lot more attention on pinball. There was a hesitancy to take on new video game products, so orders were very low in the back part of 1978, the last couple of months of 1978. Once again, I mean, some people did order it, and once it was on location, the exact same thing started happening in the United States that had happened in Japan for all the exact same reasons. It was revolutionary, it was exciting, it was thrilling, it spurred competition, all of this stuff that was very unusual and hadn't really been seen before in this kind of package was all the rage. So by February of 1979, once those initial earnings from those initial distributors and operators that took a chance on the game started coming in, everybody realized that this was the must-have item. By March of 1979, Midway had reported that Space Invaders had passed its Seawolf game as the highest-selling video game they had ever made. We don't have numbers direct for Midway, but the number that's usually bandied around for Seawolf sales is 10,000 units. You know, it, it did 10,000 units, but that was a 1976 game. The games that came out in 1977-1978, they were doing about 4 to 8,000 units, 4 to 7, 4 to 8,000 units per game over their entire life. Space Invaders, in like three months, had eclipsed Seawolf's 10,000 units. 
In three months, it had eclipsed literally, as far as we know from the numbers, we don't have complete numbers, but we have complete enough numbers, and we have an idea of what the best-selling games were. In three months, Space Invaders eclipsed the sales of any individual game released in 1977 or 1978. Then in the summer, presumably because school was out, people are going on vacation, so they're going to places like boardwalks that have games. Summer tends to be a, a decent time for the industry. By summer of 1979, the game was just humongous. It was just everywhere. I mean, it's, it's not the same as Japan, because no place is like that. But if you're a coin-operated establishment or a place that houses coin-operated games, you're doing Space Invaders. All those bars and taverns and convenience stores that were largely staying away from video games and sticking with pinball, Suddenly, all of them needed to have a Space Invaders machine. So video games started penetrating street locations in a way that they really hadn't since the Pong boom had ended. Midway released its own cocktail table version, and it went right back into all of those high-class lounges that had briefly toyed with Pong and then rejected the industry. You know, after the Pong cocktail boom, the cocktail market, cocktail lounge market was basically dead for coin-op. Space Invaders brought it back, a new cocktail table, and boom, we're in the lounge market again. The BizOp guys came back, too. Space Invaders was so huge that you had the same kind of people that had been lurking around the Pong games. So, good news, Jeffrey. Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Emporium is back, but it's no longer Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Pong Emporium. It's Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Space Invaders Emporium. We're back for you, you happy people. We thought you were gone having that Pong thing on your kitchen table. No, we're here to bring you Invaders. Not to Denny Invaders. Not Invaders from Dimension X. Not Invaders from Down Under. No, Invaders from Space. We want to bring you the greatest in cocktail cabinets that you, the consumer, want to have because we know that you want to get rid of those quarters. You want them out of your pocket. They're way too heavy. That's just like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of quarters. You know that only steel, hard encased steel, can hold those quarters, and that steel needs to be inside a cabinet. And that cabinet needs to be a cocktail cabinet. And that cocktail cabinet, in order to hold all those quarters, must be Space Invaders. Pong. Yeah. <laughs> so come on down to Big Jeffrey's Cocktail Emporium, where we have base invaders that you need, at least for the next two years. That's right. And, you know, the cocktail tables, also the, the upright cabinets, there was a return of these bizop people, these blue sky people, because it was just so big again. You know, arcades were lining up banks of six, eight, maybe even more machines. And remember, this is an industry that relies on variety. So in general, you don't want too many of the same machine because the idea is that people want to see all the new novelties and so they flit around different machines and you don't make more money by having more units of the same machine. Well, when you have a big fad like this, that no longer holds water. And so arcades were installing rows of nothing but Space Invaders machines in their premises. Midway said that they would keep producing games as long as people kept buying games. They were dedicated to keeping this thing in full-time production. They introduced it, as I said, at the 1978 AMOA show. They brought it to the 1979 AMOA show. That year, it was one of the biggest hits at the show. One year after it debuted, it was one of the biggest hits at the 1979 AMOA show. 
They were still producing it by the time the 1980 show came around. It wasn't one of the big hits of the show anymore by 1980. I mean, many other games had come out since then. But Space Invaders was still in production when the 1980 AMOA show rolled around two years later. It was in continuous production for roughly, we don't have exact start and end dates, but for roughly two years it was in continuous production. The final sales figures are a little all over the place. In Japan, we talked about the overall market. Of those 230,000 Space Invaders machines, the rest made to be in the market. About 200,000 of them were created by Taito and its authorized licensees. The other 30,000-ish were clones, counterfeiters, pirates, etc. Each doing, you know, 500 here, 1,000 there. A lot of small-time operators in that. Reports in the United States pegged sales at roughly 60,000 units. Taito itself is part of releasing its figures. You know, it says that they did 200,000 in Japan. Taito says that Midway did 72,000. I don't know if that's also including the sequel or, you know, if there's some other jiggery-pokery there. We'll just say that at the low end, it did 60,000. At the high end, and according to Taito itself, it did 72,000 units in the United States. Just to give an idea, you know, let's take that 72,000 figure unit. The best-selling coin-operated product that we know of, well, not coin-operated product, but coin-operated game of all time that we know of in the United States. We don't have complete sales figures for everything. The best-selling one that we know about is a Depression-era pinball game released by Rockola, more known for its jukeboxes, but they were in pinball in the early days, called Jigsaw, that did 73,000 units. That's the best-selling that we know of coin-operated amusement ever released in the United States. There were a few other games at the beginning of the Depression, because, of course, the Depression was that real golden age of pinball. There were a few other games in that very early period that sold 50,000 units, 60,000 units. After the Depression, those kinds of numbers went away. I'm not sure there was a single other game that sold 10,000 or more units until you got to the dawn of the video game era. Again, we don't have complete sales figures, so there could have been something. But those were Depression and early Depression, specifically era kind of figures. You never saw anything like that again. In the early video period and in the solid-state pinball period, you saw some games, like the most popular solid-state pinball games, got as high as 17,000, 18,000 units. The most popular video games got as high as 10,000, 12,000 units. 72,000 units. Nothing like that had been seen in video games ever by a factor of seven. Nothing like that had been seen in coin-operated amusements generally since the early 1930s. Was it as big a deal in the United States as it was in Japan? No, not quite. But that is an outsized hit in the context of the coin-operated amusements market in the United States. Once again, it's taking another market by storm. It is causing a complete revival of coin-operated video games in the United States. It is the launching pad for the so-called golden age of video games, where video games, coin-operated video games in the United States, literally become the most lucrative form of entertainment in the U.S., Bigger than the movie industry, bigger than the music industry, bigger than all of the professional sports leagues combined. It becomes the pastime, and it starts, it truly starts with Space Invaders. Obviously, Space Invaders has helps getting it to those truly lofty heights, but it all starts with Space Invaders. 
paradigm shifting. It's really amazing just how big the game system was. It almost makes me wonder with how much these big boom-bust things go with a lot of these early games. Pong, Space Invaders, they ramped up and made hundreds of thousands of units. What happened to all of those units afterwards? <laughs> they all just get hit with a hammer and then tossed into a dump or what? Funny you should mention that. It's almost like we planned this, but we didn't. Because that is a perfect segue into the impact of Space Invaders in the European markets. Space Invaders hits Europe at roughly the same time it hits the United States. For instance, in Britain, it's introduced in December of 1978. Going back to those worldwide figures again, Taito says that they and their licensed manufacturers sold about 300,000 units of Space Invaders worldwide. 300,000. They said 200,000 of that was in Japan. They said that 72,000 of that was in the United States. So that would leave less than 30,000 units for the entire rest of the world. So does that mean that the rest of the world got barely any space invaders? No, that is not what it means. It was huge in Europe, too. And it wasn't all clones, though some of them were. But a lot of the reason for that is that once that boom crashed in Japan, a lot of that product got dumped secondhand into Europe. Europe in this period is kind of weird, and and I don't have great insight into every European market, because there are a lot of European markets. I have more insight into the British market than I do in most of the others, and the British market is not the same as the French market, is not the same as the German market. They are different markets. There was a, a lot less focus on Europe in this time period by, say, the Japanese companies. There was a lot of cross ties with the United States, but there was a lot less emphasis on Europe. Now we have another outsized hit here in the form of Space Invaders, which takes off like wildfire in Europe as well, just like it does everywhere else. I mean, this is a truly global phenomenon. It's, it's a language that everybody understands. There are fewer avenues for officially getting product into Europe. Taito does have a company that they set up, Taito Electronics, in Europe, and Taito does make some local deals. But it's a lot more of a fragmented market, and there's a lot less interaction. Most of the interaction between the Japanese and their European counterparts just tends to happen at the big trade shows. There's less of a connection as there is in the United States, where some of these companies have started setting up more robust subsidiaries. So that causes two things to happen. It causes parallel importing and local copying. Local copying is exactly what it sounds like. A company locally starts to rip off and make their own version. In Britain, the company Alka Electronics, which was kind of a big manufacturer at the time, was one of the big culprits of this, making their own version of Space Invaders, which they called Space Attack. But there was also the problem of parallel importing. And what parallel importing is, is that you have given a right to someone to create a game in their home territory. But the license you've given them is restricted to that home territory. So this person is legally sometimes manufacturing games on your behalf, but only in a specific region. However, because there's so much demand, they decide to offer their product outside of the country anyway, because it's almost impossible for that to be regulated, especially with the lack of copyright protection. They are exporting to another country, even though they're not allowed to export. And so that's considered a parallel import because it's being exported in parallel to the legal importing. 
So, for instance, Zaccaria, an Italian company that is known for making its own products, mostly pinball, is given a license by Taito to manufacture Space Invaders in Italy for the Italian market. Zaccaria starts shipping them all over Europe. Zaccaria makes a mint off of Space Invaders, even though they're not supposed to be selling it. So, you know, when Taito is only is selling less than 30,000 in Europe, They've got competition from Alka Electronics doing its own homegrown thing. They have competition from Zakaria, which is doing parallel importing, where they're only supposed to do Italy, but they're doing the whole market. You have companies in Japan that are counterfeiters or cloners that are shipping their product overseas. You have product that is no longer viable in the Japanese market as that market is falling apart that is now being shipped to Europe, almost a secondhand product. You have lots of of piracy going on that's really fueling that European market. This is really beginning to become a problem, not just in Europe, but everywhere. Because as this situation develops, as the Japanese market starts to cool and the Western markets start to heat up, there starts to be an insatiable demand in both the United States and Europe for Japanese product. Because it's not just that Space Invaders came out of nowhere to wow the whole industry. Japan came out of nowhere to wow the whole industry. Not that Japan hadn't had some interesting products before in the electromechanical days like Periscope and that kind of thing. But, you know, that was a decade ago. This is Japan coming out of nowhere with this hot new thing. And they seem to have cracked the code on video games. There'd been a lot of hand-wringing over what comes after Pong. And for years, they'd been trying this and that. And some games do a little better, like Breakout and Seawolf. And some games don't do well at all. And overall, the market is just not pushing forward. And Pinball's doing better. But suddenly, here is this Japanese company that seems to have solved video games. Even after the Space Invaders thing is starting to run its course, There's a real, what else can we find in Japan? This is an untapped market for creative video games. This is great for both sides, because on the U.S. and European side, there are all these companies, all of these distributors, all of these manufacturers that are like, we can keep this boom going by continuing to bring the latest and greatest from Japan over to our local markets. From the Japanese side, it's like there's all of this infrastructure that's grown up around Space Invaders. The company's officially licensed by Taito. The company's not officially licensed by Taito. The cloners, the counterfeiters, the other companies that are more reputable than cloners and counterfeiters, you know, companies like that become household names later on, like Universal and Data East and all of these who are a little more reputable than the straight cloners and are doing some of their own variations, but are still all tied up in this invader infrastructure as their market's cooling a bit in Japan in order to keep that whole infrastructure that's grown up around space invaders going, it becomes necessary to look outward towards Western markets to keep making money. Because at this point, European and American companies both are becoming pretty indiscriminate in taking Japanese product. They just want it all. There's a hierarchy there, like the top companies like a Midway get to be more discerning and they get to choose the products that they think are going to be the most impactful. It's not like a single company is suddenly trying to license everything out of Japan, but there's a taker for something almost everywhere. And so companies like Taito and Namco and Nintendo and smaller companies like Dichibutsu and Data East and whoever else are starting to find a real demand for their product overseas and a real opportunity to make licensing deals to get their product overseas. The American and European companies want these licensing deals, but there's one problem. 
because of the lack of copyright protection, it is very hard to stop the smaller Japanese cloners and counterfeiters, not even Japan, even other places in the Far East, like your Taiwans and your Hong Kongs. It's very hard to stop these cloners and counterfeiters from ripping off games and re-releasing their own version because there's no legal protection. Because the demand is so insatiable in the West, in the United States and in Europe, operators can't get everything they want through the officially licensed companies. So they're parallel importing. They're dealing with the counterfeiters. They're dealing with the cloners. They're dealing with the companies that are doing the parallel importing where they may legally have a license to manufacture the game in Japan or like with Sakuraya to manufacture it in Italy, but then are selling it everywhere even though they're not supposed to. The market, particularly in Europe, this is more of a problem in Europe than it is in the United States, though it happens in the United States too, believe me. I mean, there's Midway and Atari go after a lot of companies that are doing this kind of stuff in the U.S. as well. It's not quite as impactful in the United States. In Europe, it's particularly bad, I think, because there's just a lot less infrastructure and relationship set up between some of these companies. It's suddenly the lack of copyright protection in Japanese law is becoming a major problem, a major international problem. By about 1980 or so, copyright has been recognized in the United States. It's been recognized in the United Kingdom. It's probably been recognized in some other European countries as well. I just don't know as well. But in Japan, there's still no copyright protection. And it is no longer a local Japanese problem. It is an international problem because so many of these Japanese companies are now somewhat reliant on their licensing in the West to continue to bring in the same kind of revenue they were bringing in at the peak of the Space Invaders boom. Western companies are getting fed up and are getting a lot more cagey about doing these licensing arrangements because what's the point if they're just going to get undercut in the market? So there starts to be a lot of international meetings. JAMA starts holding conferences on copyright issues that involve not just Japanese manufacturers, but also American manufacturers at the major trade shows and whatnot. Sega, in particular, because they're a company that's in both worlds, they're in the United States and Japan, technically an American company, but with a huge Japanese presence and kind of sort of founded in Japan. It's complicated. They kind of take the lead on this a little bit. They do something very clever where they take one of the games that Gremlin created in the United States, Gremlin being their American coin-op subsidiary, and that Gremlin copyrighted in the U.S., And then they filed a transfer of copyright in Japan because that was a loophole where they could get something copyrighted because it was already copyrighted someplace else and they could transfer that copyright in. And they were successful doing that. So that helped if there was a game in America, but it did nothing for the domestic output. When Sega released Frogger, they went after copyright infringers big time. They started doing all sorts of litigation. But remember, the Japanese legal system moves very slowly. So there's not necessarily going to be a relief for a while. But this is the one final area in coin-op where Space Invaders had a huge impact, because it would actually be Space Invaders that broke this impasse. Or rather, to be more accurate, its sequel, Space Invaders Part 2. We're mostly doing an episode on the original Space Invaders, so we're not going to be labor. Obviously, there have been sequels and spinoffs and whatnot, on and on and on, and we're not going to go through all of that. But we do need to take a moment to talk about Space Invaders Part 2. Space Invaders Part 2 came out about a year after the original, came out in late 1979. It was officially unveiled 
in August 1979. Some sources say that wasn't really hitting the market until November. I don't know, but it came out sometime in that back half of 1979. This is after the boom had started to collapse, you may recall. So they did an update because they still had a bunch of Space Invaders boards, and the boom had suddenly collapsed, and so they needed a way to start using up those boards, and so they decided to do essentially an upgrade, which they called Space Invaders Part 2. It's not all of that different from the original, but it incorporates some of the improvements that have come along since then. First, it is in full color. It's single-colored sprites. It's not the most impressive color you've ever seen in an arcade, but it's no longer black and white. It is in color. Second, based on some of the stuff that had happened with other games like Starfire and Asteroid, they went to the full high-score setup where you had a table and you could enter your initials because that had been pioneered by this point by other companies in the United States. They made a few small changes to gameplay. They added some invaders that would split in two when they were hit. They added a new UFO. They had it so that the UFO would occasionally drop new invaders off on the screen if there were few invaders left. They made tweaks here and there, but it was basically Space Invaders. It was certainly not as successful as the original Space Invaders, because by that time, other companies that were getting involved in this industry were starting to eclipse them, particularly Namco's Galaxian which we've talked about, and which was released at about the same time, was way more impressive. Whereas Space Invaders Part 2 was in color, but it was pretty primitive color with single-colored sprites. Galaxian had vibrant multicolored sprites. Space Invaders had the bunkers and the aliens descending line by line. Galaxian had nothing protecting you and had diving enemies, making things more challenging and even more adrenaline-inducing. So better graphics, more exciting gameplay. Part 2 was not a failure, because it's still Space Invaders, but it wasn't nearly as successful. However, of course, it was copied by the competition, just as Space Invaders was. No surprise there. So in November 1979, November 2nd to be exact, Taito sued a company called Ing Enterprises, I-N-G Enterprises, in district court claiming a copyright violation because they had basically just taken these Space Invaders Part 2 boards and copied them and created their own game out of them without any permission. Because the legal system in Japan moved slowly, it took a while to reach a judgment, but they actually got a judgment faster than nine years. So they filed the suit in 1979 at the end of the year. On December 6th, 1982, three years later, They won a judgment in Japanese district court saying that the copyright law did indeed apply to video games, that the code of video games was a a copyrightable thing. So that was kind of the final big legacy of Taito in Japan, is that it finally established copyright. Now, did the cloners and counterfeiters and parallel importers go away just because of that? Of course not. This remained a constant problem throughout the heyday of the coin-operated games industry. It at least provided a mechanism, finally, to be able to fight back against some of these companies. And once again, it was Space Invaders leading that charge. So, yeah, to answer your question uh, about where those games went, some of them were exported to Europe and and dumped in, in other places of the world and dumped in other markets. Some of them were repurposed. The boards were taken out and the cabinets were reused. This was a thing that happened a lot with early Japanese cabinets. It's not kidding, per se, because the concept of kits isn't quite there yet, but basically you're just ripping out one thing and putting another in. There are some old Japanese cabinets that have the remains of like three or four different games on them. 
because they were just constantly replaced as new ones were outselling old ones. This caused Japan to eventually go to a standard cabinet in Japanese game centers still to this day, unless it's a big fancy game like Outrun with its car or something. You know, most games are in standard cabinets. The entire thing's kitted. You have rows of these generic cabinets, and then you switch out the circuit boards as you need them. Europe was hit by a lot of reusing as well. The European market was, throughout the Golden Age, was really overrun by piracy. The European markets never really took off in the same way as the U.S. and Japan did, in part because piracy was so rampant over there. Eventually, these crises led to what we talked about in our post-Crash Arcade episode, where everything became more kitted and you did less cabinet stuff. But with Space Invaders particularly, that's what happened. Either the boards were ripped out and the cabinets repurposed for new games, or perhaps they were dumped in another market, like someplace in Europe. Which is why, with all the piracy and counterfeiting, it it sounds like Europe didn't do as well, because Taito only sold maybe 25,000 units in Europe as opposed to the 200,000 in Japan and 72,000 in the U.S., but it was just as popular there. Just people were often getting the machine through other means. So there you have it. That's the phenomenon of Space Invaders. I thought we might talk about its impact in the home, too, but we've done two very full episodes just on the coin ops, so I think we'll save that for another time. Not for next time, just for another time someplace in the distant future, because, of course, it also had a huge impact in that market. It is, without exaggeration, Space Invaders is one of the most impactful video games ever made. As I said last episode, you can really divide video games into before and after Space Invaders. And obviously the after now is many decades longer than the before, because the before was just less than the first decade of video games. But Space Invaders really defined what an action video game is. And while there have been many updates and changes to the format since then, and many new types of gameplay and everything... Just that basic idea that you get this adrenaline rush by you taking on the hordes of the computer. That is still, whether it's a direct descendant like a Galaxian or a Xevious or a Gradius, or if it's a modern action game like a Grand Theft Auto or Horizon Zero Dawn, or, you know, which have completely different types of gameplay, at the end of the day, it still comes down to this idea of I am having fun playing video games by pitting my capabilities against the machine and sometimes, you know, in terms of the scoring and whatnot against other players. It's epoch-defining. It launched the first true video game boom, and it is a still consequential part of video game history today. Not to mention setting up that whole copyright thing in Japan. Absolutely. Now that we stand victorious over our fallen alien overlords, what shall we do as we work on cleanup? Well, I thought we might stick with Japan for a bit. It's been a while since we've done a company episode, and we've done so many companies in the United States that it's there are still companies we need to do and will do at some point. Like Accolade, where I one time said that we did an Accolade episode and we didn't. We will one of these days. But for now, let's stay in Japan and look at the company Koei. Koei has never been a huge company in the West, though people in the West are certainly aware of it and of its descendant, Koei Tecmo, after they bought Tecmo. It was one of the real pioneers in Japan in a lot of genres, particularly on computers. In recent times, I've been able to track down and and machine translate some interviews with the founders, the Arakawas, the first power couple in video games. 
that really give a good idea of where the company came from and how it started and, and all the background. So there's definitely enough there to do an interesting episode these days. And that sounds like a fun topic, especially since it's been a long time for us since we've done a company, because that's, that's part of our bread and butter here at They Create World. Okay, so we'll look at the history of Koei at They Become Koei Tecmo next time on They Create World. Someone get me a shower. This alien needs to get off me. Check out our show notes at podcast.theycreateworlds.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's video game history blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com. Alex's book, They Create Worlds, The Story of the People and Companies That Shaped the Video Game Industry, Volume 1, can now be ordered through CRC Press and at major online retailers. Email us at feedback at theycreateworlds.com. Our Twitter is TCW Podcast. Please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash theycreateworlds. Please help get the word out by leaving a review on your favorite podcasting service. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward. Found at joshwoodward.com slash song slash airplane mode. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Outro music is Bacterial Love by Roll of Music. Found at freemusicarchive.org. Used under a Creative Commons attribution license.